I don't know if you've experienced a moment like this, but I can remember when I was first teaching my kids to ride a bike. Uh, three children, uh, and when they were younger, taught, taught them how to ride a bike. And one of the things that was really, really important to them is that I would stay with them. Do you remember that? Have you ever taught a child to ride a bike, or do you remember learning to ride a bike? They just desperately wanted to know that I would be with them and that I would not abandon them. Um, I don't remember learning to ride a bike. I just remember teaching them to ride a bike and how passionate they were. They wanted Daddy to be with them. Um, I can remember as a child going through a s- similar experience. It was very scary uh, going on a log ride at Six Flags. Do you all remember the log ride? Anybody been on one of those? And I can remember four years old, that was the most terrifying experience of my life. Um, still, as a 46-year-old, that might be the most terrifying thing I've ever experienced. And I can remember just so scared, and my dad saying he would be with me. He would be right there. It's really important for us in our child-parent relationships to know that our parents are with us when we're worried about things. Um, and it's also important spiritually. And we're going to see in the Joseph story that God was with Joseph. So if you have a Bible, I'm going to have you open up your Bible to Genesis It's chapter 39 this week. We're skipping over chapter 38. I'll, I'll kind of give you some background on that as we move through the text because it, it's kind of woven together with what is in 39. But we'll be focusing on chapter 39. If you don't have a Bible, turn in the black Bibles under the chairs to page 32. You can grab one of those. We put those there. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible at home, you're welcome to keep that. We want to get you in the habit of opening those up. So it's page 32, but it's Genesis chapter 39. This series we're calling the Joseph Stories, God's Purposes in a Dysfunctional World. So last week we started it off and we saw how Joseph's brothers betrayed him, wanted to kill him, they sold him into slavery, and now we're picking up the story and we're recognizing that even though Joseph has been utterly betrayed, God is still with him. And that's really helpful for us, right? We need to understand that God can still be with us even in hard circumstances. So we're calling it this morning, God with Joseph. That's going to be a concept that's just repeated again and again in this text. God is with Joseph. Joseph. And this comes in context of bigger promises that God had made to Joseph's uh, patriarchs before him, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He promised to Abraham, I'm going to be your God and you will be my people, right? I'm going to be with you and I'm going to bless the whole world through you and through your descendants. So now we're seeing these promises that God made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. We're now seeing these promises come to fruition in Joseph's life. We're seeing Well, you know, it seems like everything's going wrong, but God is with him. Nonetheless, God is with him. And so we're going to see good things and bad things. As we read the story, it's going to start off with good things. Um, Seems like God is making everything work out, but then the story kind of turns and it gets bad as well. So in the good and the bad, God is with Joseph. So let's read in Genesis chapter 39, starting in verse 1. It says, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord Bless the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. 
Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So we see good and bad. The repeated phrase that we see at the beginning of this is that God is with him. And we're going to see that again at the end of the story as we read more uh, this morning. We're going to see at the end of chapter 39 as well. God is with Joseph. The Lord is with him. So let me pray and ask God to teach us and help us to understand what what that means for us, uh, how that can be an encouragement in our lives as well. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Uh, We believe that you speak to us through your word. And so we pray um, that we would experience a supernatural act this morning as your Holy Spirit comes and meets us here. We pray that you would open our minds and our hearts, that we would be receptive to your voice, that you would speak to us, encourage us, and shape us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So the bigger story as we've been going through the series is that God is still at work. There are still God's purposes being played out. That's kind of the climax of all of these chapters in chapter 50. Joseph clearly sees it, right? Um, But we get to see the story unfolding. And so this week we're seeing the story unfold and what the narrator wants us to hear, what the writer wants us to see is that God is with Joseph. It's repeated again and again and again. And so what I want us to do is kind of follow that major theme that the story is showing us and then see how that plays out in the different circumstances, right? Because the idea is that God is with Joseph when he's successful. God is also with Joseph when he's going through hard things, right? And so we're going to see God is with Joseph at his work. That's helpful to us because we spend most of our time at work. So it'll be a good way for us to kind of think about what we're doing in our life. And then we're going to see that God is with Joseph through his temptation, during temptation, and trial. He's going to be tempted to do things he shouldn't. And then in the end, we're going to see that God is with Joseph also in betrayal. Everything kind of falls apart. He's betrayed. He's lied about. So starting off, we're going to look at the idea of God being with Joseph at work. God is with Joseph at work. Uh, So again, we've already read this section. Joseph is brought down in slavery with Potiphar. Potiphar bought him, right? So he's a slave. And I want you to think about this. What your temptation and my temptation would have been in this situation. I don't know if you've ever been in a job where you felt like you were a slave or you felt like it was the worst job you could have, um, but that's the kind of job Joseph has. This is a terrible, terrible job. He's been betrayed by his brothers. He's, they wanted to kill him. They settled for selling him into slavery, and that's the situation. So it'd be real easy for Joseph, like if it was me or you, right? It'd be easy to say, and I didn't, I didn't ask to be here, right? Like, this is not the right job for me. You know, it'd be easy to kind of emotionally check out. But that's not what we see going on in Joseph's life. So in verse 1, it says he's brought down and he belongs to Potiphar. Verse 2, it says the big theme here, the Lord was with Joseph. And he's going to repeat that again and again. A little little side thing to know, whenever you see an English translation, all capital L-O-R-D, that's his personal covenant name, Yahweh or Jehovah, it's pronounced different ways. It's like Yahweh, and so we never really know how to say it real well in English. But it's that idea that God is, is there for us. Uh, that's how he reveals his name to, to Moses as in the burning bushes of the great I am. I am who I will be. I will be there for you is kind of what that means. So this is God's very personal name here. So it's, it's kind of jumping into not just God in the abstract, but 
the covenant God of the Old Testament who makes promises and who gives grace, He is really with Joseph. All of that is being said right here in verse 2. And he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. So on a surface reading, especially in the ancient world, it was clear that when someone had success, that God had granted that. And so what I want us to think about is we know that God is with Joseph at work, and we're going to see later on this word blessing, right? That God has blessed him. And I want us to think about the reality that God's presence with us gives us two kinds of blessings, okay? There's a surface blessing of just fruitfulness and success. And that's here in the text. And God just sovereignly gives us success, right? Like sometimes you're at work, you work hard and you, you pay your dues and you do the right thing. But sometimes God just gives you success at one job and at other jobs, maybe not as much. And so when God gives you that success, you have to give him credit and say, God, thank you for giving me success. And that's the situation we have here. So that, that word success, and then another word we'll see is blessing. It says, he became a successful man. He was in the house of his Egyptian master. Verse three, his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hand. So even his pagan master can see this as well, right? His pagan master sees, oh, God is with you. The Lord is with you. He's giving you success. Verse four, so Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had, right? If you see that God is with someone and God's blessing is on them, you're gonna entrust them with stuff, right? You're gonna, you're gonna want them to do more work. He kept entrusting Joseph with more. He basically entrusted everything in the house to him, gave over everything to his hand. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake and the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. Um, so blessing is used a couple of ways in the Bible. Blessing sometimes is like a prayer, right? Like I'm praying a blessing over you. I'm asking God to give you blessing. Sometimes that's how we use the word bless, like God bless you, you know, or the Southern thing, bless your heart. Like when you're a real idiot, people say, bless your heart, right? So that's saying, you know, I wish God's grace on you. You sure need it, right? That's kind of how we use it sometimes, but it can also mean actual substantive blessing, right? Like sometimes you're wishing and praying for it, Sometimes it's there, it's actual fruitfulness. And that's the way the word is used here. Um, and in Genesis, it's used that way quite a bit, right? In the very beginning and in, in the creation stories, God blessed mankind so that they would be fruitful and multiply, right? And so to think of it in a work context, when our work is going well, when we're imaging God as we were designed to do work for his glory, that's how God designed us, and it's going well, that's God's blessing. When we're fruitful, when things are going well, that is blessing, tangible Real blessing. Um, another kind of side thing we need to understand about this that some of you may have never heard before, work is good. Did you know that? I know some of you are like, what? That's blasphemy. No, work is good. God made us to work. When you follow the story in Genesis, God made us to work in the garden when everything was perfect. And then later our sin cursed the work. So, so I'll agree with you, our work is cursed and we have problems. You know, the way it's described in Genesis 3 is thorns and thistles in our work um, and pain and childbearing, right? Kind of the two aspects of our work there. It's painful, it's difficult, it's cursed, but work is good. It's a good thing. God designed us for that and that is how we image God. The God who creates and who forms and who, who fills and shapes the earth in Genesis 1 and 2. God made human beings to do that kind of thing. So, I want you to understand God actually wants you to work, right? So like your entire goal in life can't be to retire and stop working. Like, like maybe you want to stop the kind of work you're doing and do a different kind of work, but God made us 
to work. That, that's what he made us for. That's how we reflect his goodness in the world. And so Joseph seems to understand that and God's blessing is with him and his presence is with him. Again, so much so that in verse three, his master can see it. His master understands it. And it even says in verse four and five that that blessing rolled out onto Potiphar. It's not just like the stuff that Joseph did was good, but Potiphar was still struggling because he was a pagan, right? Like, no, the blessing rolled through Joseph and it was overflowing onto Potiphar. And so again, it's an echo of the promises that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12. Whoever curses you will be cursed. Whoever blesses you will be blessed. Like this blessing is going to roll out and you're going to bless all the nations of the world. That's what it means to be God's people. Is that as God blesses us, we would bless others. It would roll out and bless others. So we talked a lot about how blessing can be the like tangible success and fruitfulness, right? And we see that here in his life. And that's in contrast to just laziness and not doing anything, right? A lot of times you and me, if we're in a bad job, we can think, man, I, I deserve a break, right? I, I was thinking of this uh, famous literary example of a character named George Costanza. Um, and George Costanza had this one job where he set up this little hidden bed under his desk and he basically slept all day. He never worked at this job, right? And so that's the other extreme of what our lives should not look like, right? I'm all for naps, right? Naps are not evil, but you shouldn't sleep all day under your desk at work, okay? That's just like a basic, um, you should be fruitful. You should be having success. You should be knowing that God is with you and you've got his blessing and then you're blessing those around you in the work you do. You're doing it for God's glory. You're showing how good God is. So at one level, that blessing is just God's sovereign grace that he gives to us through his presence. But there's this other thing I want us to focus on for a minute too. When you know that God is with you, that changes the direction of your heart. That changes your mindset. When you know that God is with you and he has not abandoned you, that frees you up to be for others. It frees you up to stop having an orphan mentality where you feel like you have to fight and scrap to take care of yourself. It turns you into a servant leader. We see this exemplified in, in Christ. In John chapter 13, we saw it a few months ago as a church when we were studying the gospel of John. In John chapter 13, we're told, my rough paraphrase, that Jesus knew who he was and where he had come from. It reiterates that Jesus knew the blessing of oneness with the Father And because of that knowledge, he served his disciples. Because of that knowledge, he was willing to act like a slave. He didn't worry about how humiliating it looked or what he looked like. He served others in love. That's the definition of servant leadership is knowing that God is intimately involved in your life. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Because that's going to translate then into you living differently at work. That's going to look like you being the kind of person that exemplifies God's presence in your workplace. So a big question for us is, is do we look like Joseph, right? Like here's a story. God's with Joseph and there was blessing. And Joseph seemed to know that. That seemed to affect how Joseph saw his circumstances. Do we know that? Do you know that God is with you or do you think, no, he's abandoned me, so I don't need to do a good job here, right? Joseph was hitting rock bottom and he still did a great job. And he honored God in these circumstances. And just to be clear, if you are at rock bottom and you have a terrible job you hate, it's great to pray that God would move you to a different job, right? Pray, ask him to change your circumstances, but make the most of your circumstances. Know that God is with you even in those hard circumstances and he wants to work through you in 
that place in that environment. So one last uh, New Testament cross-reference for our work is a, a great one in Matthew 5.16. It says that we are to do these good deeds in our life in such a way, that literally it says, let our light shine before men in such a way that they see our good deeds and praise our Father in heaven. It's easy to read that verse in the New Testament and think, oh, when he's talking about good deeds, he means like, churchy things, you know, like teach Sunday school and work in the nursery. We want you to do that, right? Um, But good deeds literally means good work. That's what it means. Like people will see your light shining at work. Your job matters. God has placed you there for his glory. So my question is, do people see our light shining through our work, through our good work, and then praise Father because of it? Because that seems to be the situation for Joseph. His pagan master sees God at work with him. Okay, the next point is that God is with Joseph during temptation. During temptation, he's being tempted to sin. So to kind of play this out again and think about what we might do in this situation, if we had been utterly betrayed, if we had been beat up, if we had been wronged, it's easy to think then when temptation comes along, oh, here's an opportunity for pleasure and escape. It's a common thing we do as human beings. We're like, man, The universe has mistreated me, so therefore I don't have to keep my moral framework any longer. I am now justified to sin. I'm justified to step outside of what I believe is right and wrong so that I can have some pleasure and some fun and just escape for a little while. It's a common thing. We make that decision all the time. So God is with Joseph even during temptation. And this is contrasted. I mentioned this real quickly earlier. This is contrasted with how Judah lives out his faith in chapter 38. So I skipped over chapter 38. I encourage you to read it on your own. It's going to kind of creep you out a little bit. It's a gross chapter, all right? But chapter 38, summary is that Judah is sexually immoral. And then 39, Joseph is sexually moral. 38, Judah violates their standards of morality. Chapter 39, Joseph uh, resists temptation. And so the, um, the implicit, implied Uh, application for us is that we would also resist temptation as God's people. We see Joseph is kind of going before us as this champion that kind of shows us how to live. So let's look again at verse 6. So chapter 39, verse 6, it says, so the master Potiphar left all that he had in Joseph's charge and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. And so just kind of idiomatically, it's like he really didn't worry about anything except if he was going to have salmon or steak for dinner. You know, like that's the only decision Potiphar had to make is, is the implication here. So everything was taken care of by Joseph. Now the second part of verse 6 says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. So he was, he was hot, right? Like he was really good looking. He, he looked nice. People were attracted to him. Interestingly enough, chapter 29 says the exact same thing about his mama, Right? Um, so my children fortunately look more like their mom than me. So that's a great blessing in their life. And, and Joseph has the same thing, right? Like we don't see anything in the text to say that Jacob was good looking. So fortunately for Joseph, he looks more like his mom than his dad. And it says here, uses the exact same phrase about his mom, says he was handsome in form and appearance, but this causes some problems for him. Verse seven, after time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Now, this is interesting. Uh, Lie with me is is three words in English. In the Hebrew, it's just two words. And commentators say that there's a literary, just kind of the way the writer writes this, a literary contrast because Joseph has a very long and intelligent reply 
but Potiphar's wife has this very short invitation to sin. And so it's kind of like contrasting uh, an intelligent human with like a brutish beast. You know, like the temptation to sin is an animal type temptation for human beings. But as human beings, we really image God when we have self-control and we resist temptation. Now, many of us, we fail in, in many ways, but, but the contrast is supposed to show us something that we're aspiring to here, right? And so she's kind of brutish, come lie with me, verse 8, but he refused. And he said to his master's wife, this well-thought-out explanation, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? First thing I want you to see is that Joseph is basically saying, um, I could get away with this. My master has given me everything. Like he has given me absolute trust. And so if you're mistreated and you're put in a bad situation, often temptation comes when you have no accountability and you have absolute trust and you know you could totally get away with it. And Joseph is actually saying, yeah, I I could totally get away with this, but this would not be right. Joseph knows what he believes about right and wrong, and that's part of what strengthens him. Uh, We see a parallel in the Gospels when it talks about Jesus being tempted in the wilderness by Satan. Jesus responds with Scripture. Um, And so I think an encouragement for us is to know what we believe, to know God's Word, so that we can kind of connect those dots logically when temptation comes, we're, we're prepared for it because we actually know what we believe. We're like, no, that would be wrong. And this is what God calls me to. And I've already thought it through. And so that's something that stands out about Joseph here. Again, commentators say she just has like these two words, makes a demand to him. And then he has this long explanation of, you know what? That would be betraying my master. And you know, if I betrayed my master who trusts me, then I would actually be betraying my God. And so instead of Joseph kind of categorizing things like there's my religion over in this box. I do religious things on Sunday and then I do whatever I want on Monday through Friday. You know, like he doesn't have things divided up into different boxes. It's all connected. His faithfulness to his master is reflected in his faithfulness to God. And they're the same thing in Joseph's mind. And so again, great example for us to follow. He gives us this example of what it looks like to be faithful. And so he says he's not going to do that. He resists. And verse 10, it says, And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. And so the text emphasizes that this temptation kept coming. It just kept coming. And it was again and again. I think, sadly, often we prepare ourselves for one great resistance to temptation in our lifetimes. You know, like, someday I'll be tempted to something bad and I'll say no. But But often, temptation comes daily, right? It just keeps hammering us like the waves on the seashore. We're tempted and we're tempted and we're tempted. And I want to encourage you that part of what it looks like to walk with Jesus is to continue to fight against sin, to continue to resist temptation, to not just kind of get yourself ready for one heroic moment, but but a lifetime of trusting Him, of, of having these choices of, well, there's sin and that could be my fortress and my place of safety, or there's God. And the Bible says he's my fortress. He's my savior. So I'm going to run to him instead of to the sin. I'm in a difficult situation. There's part of me that thinks, man, I deserve this. I've been wronged. But I'm going to say, no, I, I deserve uh, no, no sin here is going to solve my problem. But I, I need to trust in Jesus. 
And so that's, that's the temptation that's laid out to us in many different ways. Now here it's specifically about sexual temptation. And so I want to talk about that for just a little bit because uh, we do have a lot of disagreement in our confusion, uh, confusion in our culture right now over you know, what is okay and what is not. Um, so one of the ways that I think is helpful to think about this is with the illustration of a fire pit. Um, fire is a great gift that we can use for many good things. Uh, but we, we learn that we've got to keep it controlled with boundaries, right? So when you make a fire, you want to make a fire in a fire pit or in a fireplace, that makes it safer. Um, I've, I've learned this from experience. I've had some accidents with fire, okay? Um, a lot of you have learned this in maybe with fire, maybe when it comes to alcohol, maybe when it comes to sexuality. There are, there are things that God gives to us as good gifts, but sometimes they can burn out of control and they can cause serious problems. So the way we understand the biblical worldview is that it teaches that sexuality is indeed a good gift from God. And it's something to be received, and we thank God for it, and there's pleasure involved in all those things. It's a good gift from God. He thought it up, is what we understand. He invented it, which is really crazy. That's a whole rabbit trail I'm not even going to go down, because it would embarrass all of us. But he created our bodies to respond that way. It's his design. But he says that's to be enjoyed within this particular boundary within this particular fireplace. So he sets the boundaries for us. And so the Christian worldview says that sexuality is something only to be practiced within a lifelong covenant commitment, a heterosexual uh, one-time marriage forever. Like that's the ideal. That's what God has designed us for. We have a statement about that in our constitution and I'd be happy to talk to you more about it because I recognize you guys, we all come from different backgrounds, right? You all have different ideas. You've been taught different things. I'd love to talk to you about it. I know some of you wouldn't agree with me, and I just want you to know you're welcome here. We're glad you're here. You don't have to run out the door because we have different views on sexuality. Um, But I just want to encourage you to consider what the Scripture says about it and that God actually wants your joy more than you do, that God cares about you. And things may not seem immediately to be the right answer because they don't seem to be pleasurable in the short term, but God cares about our long-term joy. And so he sets these boundaries for us. I also want to recognize that a lot of times in the past, the church has not been very gracious or loving to those who sexually struggle. And so I just want to uh, apologize to those of you who have been hurt, who have been beat up by churches, who have been judgmental, who said, this sin is worse than all other sins, right? And we would say, no, James 2.10 says, if, if you've broken the law in one part, you've broken the whole thing, right? And so all human beings, we're all the same in that sense, We're all sinners who have violated God's standards. We all need his grace and forgiveness. That's something that makes us equal. So I want to reiterate that. In the statement that we made on sexuality in our church constitution, kind of our bylaws of what we believe as a church, we said this. The leaders of Grace Bible Church are grieved that some people feel less welcomed by churches than others. We affirm that all people need God's grace regardless of sexual desires. All humans struggle with a variety of desires. Following Jesus regularly entails resisting human desires. We're a community seeking to submit our competing desires to our ultimate desire, which is union with Christ. And so what we're saying there is that we don't want to give in to the temptation that our desires are what's always right. What we would say is our desires are often wrong. We often desire the wrong thing. Something might be short-term Awesome, pleasure, wonderful, seem great, but long-term it's the wrong thing. And so what we do is we look at the cross and we say, okay, this story tells me, this history tells me that the God of the universe came after me and sacrificed himself. He died for me on the cross. He gave his life 
to, to pay the penalty for my sins. And he rose from the dead. He's conquered sin and death for me. So when I'm not sure, I'm going to trust him. There are things in my life that God calls me to that I've, I say, man, that doesn't look fun. That doesn't look pleasurable. But I'm, I'm going to trust him instead of trusting my own desires. And that's what it means to walk with Jesus. So again, we see this worked out in Joseph's life. I want to encourage you that um, this can be sometimes confusing for us when we look at Old Testament morality uh, because the Old Testament mixes up the ceremonial laws with the moral laws. But when you unravel that, when you step back and look at the whole book, there's, there's a clear consistency of God's moral framework across Old and New Testament. And if you're confused about that, I'd love to talk to you more about that because that's one of the number one ways that people today would try to undermine the biblical ethic is they would say, well, you can't trust the Old Testament because they wouldn't let people eat shrimp. So throw the whole thing out. You know, like it's, just, it's like this kind of shell game, pardon the, the pun there, uh, with shellfish. But it, it's like this, well, because there are some weird laws that they don't keep anymore, we just can't trust any of it. Let's just throw it out. Forget it. It, it has no authority in our life. And I, and I just want to encourage you to take it more seriously than that. Because what I'm afraid of, and just a heart-to-heart moment here, is I'm afraid what you're doing is you're using that as an excuse to engage in sin. And I believe you intuitively know right and wrong. I think that's what we see in the life of Joseph. And that's kind of explained in Romans chapter 1. It says, all human beings, even if they don't have the law of God, they can look out the world and they see that God is creator and they have a basic understanding of right and wrong. Maybe there's confusion in the details. We have a basic understanding of what we owe to God. And so I want to encourage you to pause and to not just run full speed with sin in these areas until you've really thought it through. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 to flee from sexual immorality. He actually says that there's something different about sexual immorality. And you know, I already said earlier, I think all sin is sin in God's eyes. But he says in, with sexual immorality, there's something different about it because we're sinning against our own body. Now he doesn't go into a lot of detail, but what I understand just in my counseling situations is there's kind of some limps that we carry that that makes it harder in some ways to overcome. And so again, I want to encourage you that God calls us to faithfulness, whether we're tempted every day or we're never tempted again. God calls us to fight whatever the temptation is. So don't let the regularity of the temptation or your struggle dictate what you're going to do, but let Jesus dictate what you're going to do. Obey him, follow him, trust him. So again, application-wise, God is with Joseph. Even in the temptation, we see that Joseph knows what he believes. And he knows that his social framework is connected to his theological framework, right? How he treats his master is connected to how he honors his God. So be prepared. We want to be prepared to resist in the same way he was. And then finally, I'd say we want to get help. Um, It's no joke to resist temptation. It's hard. We need each other, right? That's why we gather in community. When we talk about small groups, that's what a small group is about. Small group's not about, you know, like, pretending everything's fine. The small group is coming together and praying for each other and saying, man, I need Jesus. I need the Bible. I need each other. You know, we need our community here to encourage one another. We have a specialized group on Monday nights called Celebrate Recovery. It does a really good job of just focusing on uh, relentless uh, temptation that keeps coming back again and again, right? So basically, Celebrate Recovery is doing the same thing we do in all of our ministries, but it's focused on helping you if you're, you're feeling stuck. Whatever hurts, habits, or hangups maybe giving you a hard time. So find a friend that you can pray with and look at the scriptures with to help you resist temptation together. Okay, last section that we want to look at is that God is with Joseph even through betrayal. Um, So again, what are we tempted to believe? We're tempted to believe that if we resist the temptation and we do the right thing, then everything will be perfect. 
Um, there's a variety of this that comes out in a lot of churches today called the prosperity gospel. The idea is if you have enough faith or you give enough money, God's got to bless you. It, it makes God into kind of a vending machine where he's forced to submit to your obedience or forced to submit to your faith, and we have to be very wary of that. Again, we see a clear relationship between obedience and blessing, but in Joseph's life, we see sometimes everything goes wrong. And the best example of that is Jesus, the most perfect man who ever lived, suffered the most. And so it's not a one-to-one relationship, right? In a perfect world, when everything's right, and the laws are being obeyed, if you obey God, things are going to go well with you. That is the general framework, and it's right to teach our kids that. That's the way Proverbs is written. But we also have to understand there's no guarantee. There's no guarantee. And, and here we see Joseph does everything right, but everything in his life still goes wrong. Look at verse 11. One day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and he fled and got out of the house. So flee sexual immorality occurs again and again in the New Testament. And here's Joseph as an example of that. He literally just ran out the door. Verse 13, and as soon as she had saw that he had left his garment in her house and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment inside beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us, came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Just in case you didn't get it, they're going to repeat prison three times, okay? He's thrown in prison. He's thrown in the dungeon. Joseph obeys. He does the right thing. He flees sexual immorality. But still everything goes wrong. And that, again, is what I I want you to see, that just doing the right thing doesn't guarantee that everything's going to be perfect and rosy in your life. It's still worth it. And the the long-term story that God is saying is, this is worth it. Trust me. I'm working things out for you. I'm working out my glory through your life. Trust me. Short term, sometimes it's going to feel like you've been utterly betrayed again. And again, Joseph's going to be tempted to be, man, I I try to do the right thing. God, I try to do the right thing, and it all goes bad. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like, I I tried to do what God asked me to do, but I just end up in prison? I grabbed a picture of guys here in prison. A lot of you haven't been in an actual jail or an actual prison, but You've been in places where you feel confined, right? Where you feel locked up, where you don't feel like you got the freedom that you were looking for, where you feel like maybe you're at a dead end or rock bottom. Um, God can still be with us, even, even in our betrayal, even when we've been locked up, even when we've, we're doing the right thing. Sometimes it, it doesn't work out. Uh, I see this a lot of times, and it, it can be really upsetting to Christians who, who determine and purpose, they feel called by God to do something great for him, like go out on the mission field to be missionaries. You know what? Sometimes missionaries go on the mission field and they die on the mission field. Sometimes they go on the mission field and everything goes wrong. And that doesn't mean that God didn't call them to go there. Sometimes I've seen this story. Families get real excited about adoption and foster care um, and they pursue God with this difficult 
obedience. They walk down this hard road to make sacrifices for him. And, and things are really hard. Things are really difficult. I, I want to encourage you that when you pursue God in difficult obedience, you're not doing it so that all your circumstances will be wonderful. You're doing it because he called you there. And again, we have this forerunner. Hebrews talks about Jesus being this, this trailblazer that's gone before us. And it doesn't mean he enjoyed the suffering, right? He despised its shame. He, he considered the joy of, of moving through that, being one with God in heaven. So we look forward to this, this perfect future, even though the road's going to be bumpy along the way. So it doesn't mean God is not with you if you've done the right thing and everything goes wrong. God is still with you. And if he's called you to obey him, if he's called you to go down that road, keep going down that road. Pursue him. Be faithful to him. And you leave the results to God. You don't let the circumstances dictate whether he's there or not. God was still with Joseph. So to wrap this up in conclusion, just to make sure we get it, the the text really nails it down. It comes back again and there's this wraparound in in verse uh, 21 that says God is with Joseph. Really, he's with them. Even after all this that Joseph has gone through, look at verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him when he was blessing him and everything was awesome. The Lord was with him when everything fell apart. The Lord was with Joseph. And to make sure we're not confused, it, it does a really a wraparound here in the story where it echoes all the same phrases you know, he was in this important person's house. He was second in command. He ran everything for Potiphar. Then it all fell apart. Now he's in prison. You know what? The Lord's with him in prison. In just the same way, he was with him in Potiphar's house. It says, the Lord was with him and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because... The Lord was with him. Do you see that? He's driving the point home. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Uh, it's really cool here, this, this one word that I want to kind of nerd out on for just a second. Verse 21, it says, God showed him steadfast love. It's this beautiful word in Hebrew, it's chesed, which kind of wraps together two of our favorite New Testament words about God's grace. With these two New Testament words, one is grace, God's unmerited favor, right? Like we don't deserve God's blessing, but he gives it to us in Christ. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so that's grace. We didn't deserve it. It's just God's kindness, his riches. And then there's this other word, love. Uh, and you know in the New Testament, you've probably heard this before. There are like four or five different Greek words for love. The strongest word is often the one used for God's love for us, his unconditional covenant love, agape. And so steadfast love, this one Hebrew word, kind of wraps up both of those ideas. Sometimes it's translated his merciful love, his never-ending love. It's his steadfast love. It's his merciful love, his abounding love. This is the kind of God who's going to be with his people because of the promise he made, not because of how awesome his people are. So we have this little reminder in the story. God was with him. God was still showing grace to Joseph. Even when everything was going wrong, God was there. And I want to end with this. You might be asking the question, Dave, that's great. God's with Joseph. I wish God was with me. Maybe, maybe that's what you're wondering. Joseph was a famous Bible person. Sure, sure. God's with famous Bible person. 
but is God with me? I want you to understand that what God was starting in the lives of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, these promises to bless the whole world, those have been fulfilled through Christ. So, so God is with us in the same way. And in Galatians, Paul says that, that promise that God made to Abraham, it's being fulfilled in the gospel in us now. God is with us through Christ. The most famous promise of the Old Testament that God will be our God and we will be His people is fulfilled in Christ. The condition that we see in the New Testament is that we would trust Him. The question is, do you trust Him? Do you believe that He's there for you? Ephesians 1 says it this way, that when you heard the word of truth, when you believed and you believed the good news that Jesus gave himself for you, if you've entrusted yourself to that, then God has sealed you with his Holy Spirit. He's given his Holy Spirit to you as a down payment, as a deposit to clarify that you really do have part in this inheritance. The same way that God was with Joseph, he's with you if you trust in Christ. When things are good, you don't get to say, hey, it's all me, look at what I did, right? You point to God and you say, God was with me. He blessed me. And when things are bad, you don't get to say, God has abandoned me. You say, God is with me and I trust that he's doing something bigger. I trust that there's a bigger story that's going on here. We trust that that God is with us. Just like Jesus said to his disciples in John when he was leaving, he's like, I'm going to prepare a place for you, but I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm sending you my Holy Spirit. My Holy Spirit will be with you. So we see the fulfillment of all these Old Testament promises, the fulfillment of Zephaniah 3.17 that says, the Lord, our God, is with you. He's mighty to save. He's going to exult over you with loud singing. He's going to quiet you with his love. Trust that he's with you. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your grace. We pray that you would help us to, to see, to trust that you are with us in Christ. Thank you for giving us your spirit that makes that real in our hearts. Give us spiritual eyes to see. I pray for those that are here this morning that are still unsure, that are struggling to see you at work. God, I I pray that you'd speak to them, that you would open their eyes, that you would help them to see your glory. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.